Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, the RSA's Chief Executive, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to this evening's event. The first in a new series, Rethinking Education, where one year on, we're gathering practitioners, policymakers, and innovators to reflect on the key challenge areas the pandemic has brought to the fore. And also to discuss where there might now be opportunities to create new areas of consensus across political divides, and ultimately to build a better, fairer education system for all our young people. Tonight, in the kickoff debate of the season, we're gonna focus on the issue of digital learning after lockdown. How did we innovate and adapt? And what have we learned about where to take Edutech next? It's an issue Dear to my heart, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, the kitchen table where my daughter conducted most of her virtual learning during lockdown. So we've got a terrific panel with us this evening to help share their experiences and expertise and to shed light on some of the most significant challenges and choices facing us now. And we're looking forward to hearing from you all watching too. Please post your questions in the Q&A box and we'll gather up as many as possible to put to our speakers after we've heard their opening remarks. I'm going to be introducing each of our expert guests to you shortly, but just before then, we're delighted that Sir Kevin Collins, who's leading the government's education recovery effort, will be watching this series of events with interest, hoping to learn from the conversations and feed insights back into the work of his commission. We caught up with Kevin recently, and he was generous enough to share a few of his current reflections on the topics we'll be debating across the series. So to start, let's hear from him now on digital learning after lockdown. Hi, everybody, and thank you for inviting me to part of this conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing more from the panel and, and others as, as we progress, because the place of technology in education now, I think, is very live and topical issue. Uh, we've seen the growth of technology in the past in education, but through the pandemic, we've been revealed to us just the potential and the opportunity to transform the way we educate and the way children learn. However, that hasn't been consistent for all children. Some children have seen how this has brought education right into the home and involved their parents and their families in their learning. Others have really struggled to connect because they don't have the capacity, don't have the resources, and just literally don't have the connectivity. If we're not careful, technology is going to accelerate away now, but only for some. And I think there's a huge risk that we're going to see a growing inequality through technology and education. But at its best, it's brought the teaching in a way to life, which I hope we don't lose. I hope we capture that, that, that new uh, opportunity from the pandemic. But we also see that you need to be with your friends at school, not instead of, but as well as, I think, is how we're seeing technology. So we need to look at the future now with a new opportunity of bringing technology to the fore, but making sure it's for everybody. And I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. And if you want to hear more from uh, Kevin, uh, he's the guest on Bridges to the Future, the RSA podcast, which is available on your podcast app now. But now to our panel. First up, it's my great pleasure to introduce Nick Beach. Nick is Executive Principal for the Central RSA Academies Trust, a West Midlands-based multi-academy trust of eight schools. 
Having been a senior leader with the MAT since its inception, Nick, Nick now leads three schools with over 1,200 pupils aged from three to 13, serving an economically disadvantaged community in Redditch. Nick, it's great to have you here this evening to report back from the ground level, the front line. How did your teachers and pupils cope with lockdown teaching and learning? And, and how will that experience inform future decisions after the lockdown about the role technology can play across your family of schools? Thank you, Matthew. Um, I think it's probably worth starting with um, the idea that actually teaching and learning looked very different across the lockdowns and technology was the key driver of that. When um, we first went into lockdown a year ago, um, the ability to access technology was the limiting factor that determined our approach to remote learning. Um, across my schools, approximately a third of children have no had no access. Um, a third shared and inevitably older siblings get the access first and then a third were okay in terms of their access to devices. So everything was very paper-driven or accessible by phones on school websites, et cetera. Um, so the focus was actually more on tasks that families could do together, siblings of different ages, et cetera. Um, when the pupils returned, what we could see, um, depressingly, unsurprisingly, those gaps that we would associate with disadvantage quite often had widened. So reading skills, language skills, both acquisition and development, social skills were really, really evident um, for having deteriorated. So when we approached the most recent lockdown, it wasn't just that the government expectations had changed around what remote learning should look like. Actually, it was our own. It was us saying we have got to do something different in order to plug those gaps for these children. Um, we obviously received some laptops through the DfE allocation. However, um, we also, um, as a, as a multi-academy trust, decided to invest a lot in buying additional devices with the aim of getting devices to as many as, as we possibly could. Obviously, supply um, was, was a bit dribbly, and so um, it, was, it was a while before we managed to get them to, um, to everyone. But that challenge um, and the instant access to technology change really then was important for staff, and they had to work differently. And so whether that was lots of video content, for example, you know, using the Oak Academy resources, homemade resources, trying to deliver live to children at home whilst also delivering to children, key workers and vulnerable children in school, reshaping planned curriculums, lots and lots and lots of challenges. But school is much more than curriculum delivery. And that is where I think we really saw the potential of technology was in how can we use it still to deliver the interventions, mental health interventions, etc. How can we still have children reading together? Um, how can we support and keep everyone safe? And, and so staff were challenged to do this. And what was quite humbling, to be honest, um, as a school leader was actually seeing how people embraced it. And it wasn't the generational idea that you might expect. Actually, it was people really rising to the challenge and, and pushing themselves out of their comfort zones. I think one of the turning points was um, using internal expertise across um, our mat, and, and you know, this would be the same in other schools, is using that for teachers to understand what is the capability of technology rather than thinking this is what I do in the classroom and how can I replicate that and that was the point at which we saw a lot of um, very different ideas coming to the fore. Um, also we had webinars and things that were made um, available to staff and um, resources, lots of you know sort of national organisations made things free and that meant that staff had much more breadth and depth of, of access to development. 
you're right, we don't want to go back to what it was before, um, but there are challenges to sustaining this. Um, whilst we now have an increased number of devices at this point, um, within MyMap, we've decided to leave as many of those as possible at home with the families um, so that children can continue learning beyond the school day. Um, some are better quality than others, and so there's obviously a shelf life, and how will that funding work to make sure that we can sustain this level of access? Um, but also, what support can systems put in place for small schools and standalone schools? I was fortunate that we did support some of those schools that, you know, lacked the capacity or expertise um, by themselves. And especially if you've got a school that is, is small and is serving a disadvantaged community, I think there's a wider issue that we need to be considering there. Um, so, yes, we don't want it to go back to how we were before, um, but it's great that we're having sessions like this to try and identify solutions to help us make the changes that are needed to support it. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. I mean, that's so fascinating. I could, I could spend the whole of our hour just, just interviewing you about some of those questions. I'll just ask a, a couple of really quick questions because we've got so many other great speakers. But the first one is, is during lockdown, you had to do stuff online. Hopefully, now we're coming out of COVID, you'll be able to have a kind of more hybrid model. Have you learned much about what, what can and what cannot be done effectively online and therefore what it, how it might influence your kind of style of pedagogy in a, in a post-COVID world where you can choose which things to do online and which things to do face-to-face? Um, yes, absolutely. And one of the, the dilemmas at the moment is what does a classroom look like in the future? Because we're used to the idea, you know, back in my days, it was a blackboard that we all faced. And now it's a digital projector onto a whiteboard. Um, but actually, should we have some children, because some children really prefer engaging with their own, through their own device, using chat functions to ask questions. We saw a number of children really flourishing, actually, through remote learning, who wouldn't have necessarily put their hand up. So I think there's that side of it, definitely. Um, looking at how, if we've got access, if pupils have got access at home, how that can mean that the home learning, the, you know, whether that's homework or pre-learning can also be organised and structured differently. We're much more aware of how responsive we can make it as well now, rather than a one size fits all. So there's a lot of learning that's taken place. We want to capitalise on it. Learning will look different. And hopefully that's the, that's what will guide a lot of our decisions as school leaders and that we don't get hauled straight back into the normal tracks of particular frameworks for inspection and, and those sorts of things. <laughs> so it's, it's such an important moment, isn't it? Because all sorts of aspirations we've had for the use of technology and notions like flipping the classroom, personalized learning, all of these things hove into view now as a result of the incredible uh, um, way in which the education system has responded to this crisis. But, you know, it is going to be tough. I and mean, I noticed, but I won't be obsessed with my own daughter's experience, but I noticed for her that the, 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 page the website page for different classes was very variable some of them were amazing and had fantastic stuff some of them more were more kind of basic you've said that some pupils really enjoy online learning others don't how you deliver education to hundreds of pupils with you know lots and lots of staff in this situation of kind of a variability variability in teachers confidence variability in the degree to which children are happy using this stuff that's an enormous leadership challenge for you isn't it Nick 
Um, it is, but I suppose this is where when we work with other schools, you you borrow and share that expertise and, and that knowledge. But actually, there is a real consistency between how we organise the online um, learning and what would happen in a classroom in the sense of the, the structure of learning. So there, whichever format children are using, there is a familiarity to the language and that structure and organisation, I think, helps and will be critical to us being able to have a blended approach because it can't be that it's all completely different because that then means that it's much more challenging for a teacher to accurately diagnose what each child has actually learned and so on. So there will still be a core of it that's the same. It's just some of the, the delivery method may be different. And I, personally, I think it's great that actually young people may be able to have a little bit of choice over um, how they receive some of that learning and engage with some of that learning. Well, Nick, thanks so much. I think it's absolutely right that we hear first from somebody who's at the front line and, and has been dealing with these issues uh, over the last year. Uh, our next speaker um, is Professor Rosemary Larkin, who's a Professor of Learner-Centred Design at UCL Knowledge Lab. And she also leads the team at Educate, an accelerator program that helps edtech startups and educators access the research and evidence they need to ensure that emerging technologies are used ethically, transparently, and effectively. Educate teamed up with Cambridge University Press earlier in the pandemic to collect evidence of how technology was being used in homes and schools. So Rose, I'm really interested to hear what your report found and what does it tell us about what's going well and what needs to be improved? And if this truly is, from your view, a turning point in the kind of history of ed tech, which up until this point was kind of the, you know, it never quite matched the expectation, did it? No, that's so true, Matthew. And it was really great hearing from Nick um, to start off with, as you said. And I think some of the things that I'll say are, are quite in tune with, with what you've been saying, Nick, as well. Um, but one of the points that is really important, and this comes not just from the work that we did um, during the pandemic, but previously too, is the importance of looking at the whole ecosystem. So looking at all the stakeholders that make up the education ecosystem. And often we forget that. And actually, when school stopped for the majority of pupil right at, pupils right at the start of the pandemic, the, the ramifications on the whole ecosystem were huge. And so really focusing on the ecosystem is extremely important. And the education ecosystem, like all ecosystems, relies on strong communication, strong connections between the sub-communities that make up that ecosystem and within those sub-communities as well. Um, but all too often, those different communities exist in silos. And I was really struck by um, Nick's comment about small standalone schools needing support. And I, I completely see that, that connecting is so, so important. And that certainly came through in the research that we conducted. So ineffective connections and communications between groups, such as between government and school leaders, compromised the integrity of the whole ecosystem and disabled it from being resilient and self-supporting, initially at least. Um, and I also think one of the other things that came through very strongly in our research was that not all members of the education community experienced the pandemic the same way. We've seen that in terms of disadvantaged communities and more advantaged communities. But actually, 
different people within the ecosystem experienced the pandemic differently, dealt with it differently. And so if you look at the support systems that they use, the educational opportunities they identified, and at the concerns they report and recognize the differences, you can start to provide much more nuanced support in the future. And this is all about lessons learned. But in, in a couple of minutes, just to touch on some of the things that I think do very much uh, resonate with, with what Nick had been saying is that teachers did amazingly well. It was incredible what they achieved really quickly. And in some of the interviews that we conducted with teachers, we heard things such as this, as soon as somebody learned how to do something, we'd share it with everybody else. So, I mean, we had some very basic training and then we shared. So it was just learning together, helping each other out. So we found a lot of that getting together, solving things together. And certainly in terms of technology, we found in much, much greater engagement with different technologies, as you reflected, Matthew. So in one of the surveys that we conducted, 74% of educational leaders, 81% of teachers and 68% of parents reported that they had used and recommended a technology they'd never used before, which bearing in mind that lots of evidence demonstrates that educators understandably are more likely to take a recommendation from another educator actually says quite a lot about getting new experiences with new technologies. But trust was also extremely important. Now, good trust was built up between the smaller ed tech companies and educators because these companies tried to really provide different services to adapt to the needs that the schools were facing in the pandemic. And that was really important. What we also found was that trust with big tech started to drop because some of the big tech companies didn't really understand the safeguarding issues that were hugely important to schools, school leaders. There was also a real problem um, with trust between head teachers and the government because of the huge amount of information that came out from the government and often it was incomplete or contradictory and so for example one of the leaders remarked to us I know there are points at which I get more guidance and I physically look at it and I can't even bring myself to open it right now because you just get saturated with it so again we need to think about how we improve those communications and confidence and support is really important. Confidence comes from good communication. So we also found that parents who felt that communication from school leadership was clear were 10 times more likely to feel confident about the way their school was dealing with the disruption. And huge amounts of opportunities. There was very great recognition that the pandemic had brought great possibility for new opportunities. And the final point I want to make is the importance of support and the connection of being supported with being able to cope with challenges, being resilient. So we found that more than 30% of heads, teachers and parents felt supported by colleagues, for example, and school leaders, even more by family members, but only 2.5% felt supported by the government. And yet at the same time, we found a tremendous correlation between enjoying remote education and feeling confident about being able to sustain it and feeling that you are being supported by your colleagues and supported by people to help you move forward. So that really demonstrated the importance of support and also that whilst we often talk about 
collaboration being important for learners, collaboration is also important for teachers. So my real message is about the ecosystem and connecting and supporting and technology is really useful for doing that. Rose, that was that was brilliant. I mean, we we at the RSA have, have really made our specialist subject over the last year, the really how people have responded to COVID and what this might mean for what happens after COVID. What do you think are the kind of critical success factors that will determine whether or not the raising of the bar that has taken place mm. during the crisis is sustained over the future or whether or not we revert for a variety of reasons, which might be to do with just being overwhelmed or to do with fears about impact on equity or whatever it might be. What do you think will, will determine whether or not we look back on this as a turning point in our use of technology as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool for education? Such a good question. And I think it really is all about the subject of this webinar. It's about learning from what's happened and learning how, and again, Nick put it brilliantly, that you didn't think about anymore oh how do we repeat what we do in the classroom with technology it's okay how can the technology serve our needs it's a very it's, it's a really important transition so it, it, it's about realizing what technology is good at helping us with and not just and I know Priya will be talking later and obviously there's some great things that you can do with AI and personalized learning so when I say not just that, I'm not being demeaning about it, that's great. But it's also about recognizing technology as playing that really key communication piece of the fitting that piece of the puzzle is communicating, connecting. And I think we need to learn about data and the importance of data. Now, yes, we need to get the ethics around data right, but actually, you know, here am I talking about research that's based on data and evidence. And now we have the, the, the skills and the technology to help us crunch data quickly and with the right algorithms to give us really useful information. So we also need to think carefully about how connecting the ecosystem is great for communication and it's great for data collection and helping everybody to feel better informed through that data collection. Rose, thanks so much for that. So now we turn to someone who's kind of full well, of star of lockdown in many ways, Matt Hood. Matt is principal of Oak National Academy, the online classroom and resource hub set up in the early days of the pandemic following lockdown. Started from a WhatsApp group, the platform now hosts over 10,000 lessons and resources covering a wide range of subjects from early years foundation stage to year 11. Matt, this has been a pretty extraordinary 12 months for you. What are your key takeaways looking back over this year? Which innovations and changes in approach and practice do you think are likely to become permanent features of the way we educate in the future? Uh, well, th thanks for having me. Um, it's a big week for us this week. Um, uh, it, it's the one year anniversary of that WhatsApp group. Uh, our, our first team meeting was on Good Friday one year ago and can't quite believe um, uh, where time has gone over that period. Um, yeah, pupils have now completed about 125 million lessons with us over the past 12 month period. And um, there are certainly uh, lots to learn uh, still from all of that work, um, speaking to the previous point about, about data. Um, I want to make four points in the, in the 
these brief opening remarks um, about sort of reflections on, on digital technology. Um, and the first um, is uh, trying to take some sagely advice from uh, one of the most famous uh, global tech entrepreneurs, um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame. Um, I understand he's about to make his uh, be the first trillionaire uh, who knew that was a thing. And um, one of the things that uh, Jeff Bezos says when he's interviewed about the success of Amazon is that he says that when he's planning for the future and he's planning to make his business successful, he tries to think as much about what's not going to change as he does about what is going to change. And he has made a bet on the fact that in the future, people are gonna still want stuff delivered to their door and has built a multi-billion pound business out of that single interesting insight. And um, whilst I think the pandemic um, does, and it's great that the RSA is thinking about um, what will change, I think when it comes to education, there is sometimes a tendency towards futurology and uh, not enough anchoring in some of the things that are not going to change. And I think it would do as, do as well to, to think about that in, as part of the discussion. You know, one of the things that is not going to change is the basic nature and biology of the small humans that we uh, love so much and work closely with. And they aren't going to suddenly evolve to do or behave in different ways to the ways they do at the moment. And um, uh, I sometimes worry in these moments that we uh, forget that at our peril and jump to things that sound futuristic, but that are unlikely to result in the sorts of improved outcomes for those pupils that we want. Um, uh, certainly from our uh, experience, for example, the need for pupils to be with each other um, is really evident in our data. The fatigue that you see over the most recent lockdown from enthusiasm on the 4th of January, about two and a half million pupils a week with us uh, uh, over those early weeks. Um, and those numbers still saying terrifyingly high, but certainly dwindling as enthusiasm for sitting in your bedroom all day. Uh, if you were fortunate enough to have a device for yourself doing back to back uh, online lessons uh, without that human interaction with your peers is something that uh, I think we, we, we need to keep in mind. Um, the second thing that, that I want to say, and, and one of the things that I found um, challenging about um, continuous improvement at Oak National Academy of the work that we do is how thin the literature currently is when it comes to understanding the what we call active ingredients of what makes learning online work. And um, often the studies here uh, are uh, either not high quality, they don't uh, include, they're not empirical in any way, or because of the nature of how online learning has existed up until this point, they uh, are focused on higher education rather than uh, primary and secondary education. And so there are certainly things we can learn, there are bets that we can make, but the thing that I'm most excited about is the data that we will have gathered over this period of time, which will help point us, I think, to things that we can be more sure about, um, uh, rather than relying on some of the hunches uh, that we have at the moment. Um, I think it's great that teachers and school leaders supported by the academic community have worked hard, figured things out, decided what's worked for their pupils, but I would be nervous about wider scale um, 
adoption of particular approaches until we're more certain that some of these things lead to the sort of outcomes um, that we want. Um, it isn't, however, all doom and gloom. And I realize thinking about what's not going to change and thinking about the thinness of the literature doesn't make for a particularly exciting conversation. One of the things that I'd be most excited about and where I think there is lots of promise at lower levels of risk is the benefits of technology for the teachers as much as the benefits for the pupils and um, in two main areas. Um, one is reducing their workload. This is something that has been a conversation in the education system for some time and we haven't really ever managed to make any significant progress on it. I don't think publishing guidance suddenly results in teachers having less on their plates as much as we'd all like to believe that that was true. But I think there are a whole range of ways uh, in which technology is being used to help reduce the workload of their teachers, which crucially frees them up to do the thing that they are uniquely well placed to do, which is to think about the thinking of the small human in front of them, understand that small human's motivations and passions and move them on to the next bit of knowledge or skill that they're trying to tackle instead of spending their time on comparatively lower value uh, tasks or pieces of work. So um, I, I think there's been a big step change uh, in reducing workload. Um, one of the magic uh, things of Oak National Academy is we put the resources out there to help pupils learn during a pandemic whilst they're at home. And the 450,000 odd teachers in England, plus a new few other 10,000 around the world, have taken them and used them in a weird and wonderful ways that we hadn't even imagined that they would. There are about 30 different use cases. Um, some schools now use them for cover lessons. Some schools use them for uh, additional pupils with additional needs who are struggling with the sensory environment in a classroom. Some schools use them for having their trainee teachers observe another more experienced teacher explain something that's complicated that might be tricky for you to do the first time. So. And the, the, the first is that, that kind of reducing workload. Um, and the second I, I briefly touched on there is for the kind of professional development of teachers. Um, I think we've seen an explosion in um, uh, uh, online uh, continuous professional development for teachers. Um, and as someone who uh, has lived not in big cities for most of my career, I currently live just outside of Penrith in a small village. Um, teachers here being able to access those things on the same terms as teachers in large cities, because the bias isn't, we all have to travel to a conference center or a university campus to receive something, um, I think opens up a kind of equity conversation that, that, that is really powerful. Um, the last thing I wanna just touch on is this point that's been mentioned about um, the digital divide. And we've talked a lot here so far about making sure that pupils have devices. And Nick is absolutely right. Um, not all devices are equal. Um, across 125 million lessons, we know that pupils engage for about twice as long on a laptop or tablet device as they do as a mobile device. Not surprising when the mobile device is literally designed to distract you to do something other than the thing that you went on it to do. Like, that's not a surprise, right? Um, but the, the other thing that I think is really crucial is the role that data and access to data has played during the pandemic. Um, we did a lot of campaigning at the start of this lockdown and managed to get Oak National Academy zero rated, which means that there were no data charges associated with using the device. Um, a piece of research from Ofcom just before Christmas said that one in five families were struggling with the cost of data and one in 20 uh, sorry, one in 20 was struggling with the cost of data um, and, and a smaller subsection of those were cutting back on things like food and clothing to pay for it. Um, there needs to be a really serious conversation 
about what it means to access education in England, which is a conversation and Alex will be very familiar with, who's one of the speakers coming up in a second, in developing parts of the world. A big challenge and a big part of the conversation around the world is access. We are not used to that conversation here in England. It is very unfamiliar to us and it's very comfortable. But if what we are saying is during any uh, pandemic moments like this, digital access is essential for education and for catch up uh, for Kevin's work, access to a device and data is essential. That speaks to the very heart of the fundamental principle of our education system, which is free to all pupils at the point of access. And if we are serious about the role of technology, we have to be serious about this access point. Um, we wouldn't send some pupils home with textbooks and not some other pupils home with textbooks. Uh, we now need to not send some pupils home with devices and not other pupils with devices. Um, uh, so I, I will pause there, but for four, four reflections, one from Jeff, one about the literature and the opportunities to pad that out, uh, one about not all doom and gloom uh, and the role that technology has played for the teachers in our system. Um, and then the final one that we are going to have to get comfortable like our colleagues in many developing countries around the world with a conversation about access because currently uh, we are lagging there uh, from where we should be. Thanks, Matt. That was that was fascinating. I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I want to get some time for, for Q&A at the end of our session. We've got two more speakers to hear from. But nevertheless, I do have one question for you, which, I, which is broad. But in what ways do you think the greater use of technology is going to change the skill set, the aptitudes that we most need from teachers? Your very first point suggests possibly not that much, but other things you said suggested maybe it is that that teachers who are comfortable with some of the stuff that they had to do, which which they don't have to do because the technology enables them to reduce their workload in certain areas, that will free up time, which will need to be used in other ways, uh, you know, adapting technology, repurposing it for their, their needs. So what, what will this tell us about the kind of teachers we're going to need to, to, to most exploit the potential here? So, yeah, I... I... I think that the relationship between curriculum, um, instruction or pedagogy and assessment um, largely remains the same, whatever channel or device you use. Um, and the thing that matters most um, is the expertise of the teacher in understanding what pupils need to know and be able to do, how to teach that to them, how to address misconceptions, how to keep them moving through the curriculum. And of course, a huge part and, and prerequisite of that is making sure that the pupils are motivated. Motivation is the biological mechanism we have to drive our attention at a particular task and we learn what we attend to. So um, motivating pupils and getting their attention onto the tasks uh, that we want them to learn about is, is, is the thing I believe to be most critical. Um, I, I think for teachers, there are often cultural things that mean they behave and do things in certain ways, like there are with all of us in our day-to-day -day work. And, uh, and seeing the opportunities for those teachers to um, uh, use that technology to uh, reduce their workload in other areas, to direct it onto this critical task, uh, you know, my previous role, we used to call it the last foot, right? That the bit between the teacher's brain and the pupil's brain is the bit that is most important. And that, you know, th there will be technology folk who say that they can replicate that. Like I still am yet to see anybody deliver the magic that a teacher delivers in that last foot and anything we can do with them to convince them actually more culturally rather than skills that actually use the technology for the other stuff 
um, and prioritize your time on thinking about the thinking of the small, wonderful human in front of you. Um, uh, like that, I think, is the opportunity. And it's it's much more a mindset shift, I think, than it is a skills and expertise shift. Teachers are good at this, right? They are used to dealing with a class of 30 kids who all know and don't know slightly different things and identifying those misconceptions and addressing them. Like we've just got to convince them that they are uniquely placed to do that. And actually resource creation and marking stuff, um, setting cover for other people, actually like outsource that, like get somebody else to do it, get the technology to do it. Um, that's what I'd love to see our 450,000 teachers feeling confident and empowered to do. Brilliant. That's a, I, I, that answer manages to be both reassuring and inspiring, Matt. So thank you yeah. for that. Um, now, uh, we'll turn to our fourth speaker, Priya Lakhani, who's um, an award-winning educational technologist, entrepreneur, founder, CEO of Century Tech, a global leader in AI-powered learning tools for schools and families. She's worked in dozens of countries across the world. She's also the author of Inadequate, The System Failing Our Teachers and Your Children. Priya, you are a champion of what technology can do for both learners and for teachers. What did you observe from how technology was deployed over lockdown? In what ways did it confirm your predispositions? In what ways did it challenge possibly the expectations that you had? And what can we do better with EdTech to improve teacher well-being and effectiveness and level up educational outcomes. I mean, I know you could talk about it for now. You've got six minutes. I'm so sorry. That's all right. So I think, um, firstly, Matthew, we've got to take stock of the catalytic effect of COVID on digital learning, on um, AI technology in education compared to the other sectors, right? So McKinsey, for example, did a study. They said that companies had accelerated the digitization of their operations by an average of three to four years. That's remarkable when you consider what that means in practice. Four years sounds like a lot, and it is but it's even bigger in schools. So prior to COVID, most schools had digitally innovated from a blackboard to an interactive whiteboard. In a single year, because of COVID, I'd say that schools had advanced roughly a decade in terms of technological progress. So almost overnight with very little warning, we saw schools, colleges, they were plunged into remote learning. And I think that you could divide schools broadly into three categories. I think you've got many that were new to technology, very little hardware, you know, struggled with bandwidth. They really suffered. Some were emailing PDFs to parents to print out. Some parents didn't have printers at home. Some didn't have the resources to be able to deliver any sort of education to their students. The second sort of category, they managed to cope. You know, as Nick mentioned, they simply digitized what they did manually in the classroom. They taught classes of 30 students on Zoom, Teams or Google Meets. Students were sat at the kitchen table or in their bedrooms, moving from one digital classroom to the other by a click of a button. So it's no surprise, really, that those schools will go back to teaching and learning as it was pre-COVID because that's easier than using WebEx technology. During lockdown, WebEx served a purpose, right? We saw that, you know, schools were able to continue teaching and learning, but they didn't get the, to experience the benefits which can be reaped from using advanced teaching and learning technology, which I'll describe in a moment. Now, unsurprisingly, those schools that had previously embraced technology, they fared the best. So many of them leapfrogged the traditional learning management system or virtual learning environment, and they successfully embraced AI technology. So case studies and videos by teachers on how to embed the technology, how to combine it with WebEx to offer variety, how to engage parents, diagnostic tools for interventions, the impact on learning outcomes, teacher insights, varying environments, it all started appear, uh, appearing on social media. 
on LinkedIn, on Twitter, you had all these videos from these teachers. These were the innovators and the pioneers on the left of that really well-known Rogers adoption curve that gave confidence to a vast number of schools, colleges and universities to go that extra step further, to not be afraid of technology, but try it out, see for themselves which way it works for, best for them. And in that sense, we saw a 400% increase in schools and colleges in, in England. The world's largest edtech experiment essentially began uh, a year ago. So education leaders, we saw they open their eyes to the potential of using advanced technology in the teaching and learning process and consensus is forming now because of the benefits that many of them are seeing. And Nick talk, talks about this really eloquently. And what we can see is that embracing technology is now here to stay. If we do as we've always done, we get what we've always gotten. And education prior to COVID, you talked about my book, you know, I've written about it there, it simply wasn't fit for purpose. We've always known that we've needed to do better and we've always known that change is necessary. And as devastating as the pandemic has been, it's also provided an immense opportunity for embracing that change. There's a huge growing confidence in technology. I've seen that at Century. AI can now superpower the human intelligence in the teacher and learner. And most importantly, we can see a demonstrable positive impact on outcomes. So AI has proved itself to be a really useful tool to personalize learning for students. It's a technology that we can harness to learn how we all learn. And we can give students, that little person Matt was talking about, exactly what they need to learn based on their individual strengths and weaknesses. It's also used to automate and improve some of the less human dependent tasks in teaching. So we talked about teacher workload just now. It frees up teacher time to focus on actually teaching and nurturing their students. So throughout extended periods of disruption, help from AI, I have seen it be invaluable to teachers. And now schools have returned from lockdown. Schools are using AI to identify with pinpoint accuracy. Where are the gaps in learning? Where do we need to point a student to? What material best addresses those gaps? And that's something which all teachers try and do on a daily basis, but it can take weeks to do that for every student, for every topic, and we just don't have weeks. The attempts by teachers to differentiate for all is why so many of them struggle with the profession. It's exhausting and there simply aren't enough hours in the day. So, you know, we've seen a lot in Century in terms of the AI turn into that, this is a teacher's phrase, but the sidekick to the superhero teacher to augment teaching and, work, uh, and learning. And, and augmenting is the key word here. But there are serious challenges that I also want to very quickly um, address just so that I think people are hearing this from, from many of the speakers for good reason. There are so many serious challenges facing education and the use of technology. The future of digital learning will happen in stages like that Rogers adoption curve. And although COVID's accelerated the numbers of educators and students embracing technology and perhaps which stage of the adoption cycle we're now in, because of the technological divide, if we don't accelerate device and bandwidth adoption, we could exacerbate the divide between the most disadvantaged and their peers. In the UK, almost one in 10 families do not have a laptop, desktop or that tablet at home. According to Teach First, over a third of parents have at least one child with no exclusive use of a device for schoolwork. And that means relying on technology can disproportionately harm those who are already the most disadvantaged. Every student needs the software that we're all excited about, but they also need the hardware and the bandwidth. They need to be connected with their own device to take advantages of technology so we can start to level the playing field. In addition to this, you've got to recognise the attainment gap. The EEF suggests that disadvantaged primary school pupils are seven months behind their peers. And it also finds the learning gap due to COVID is wider 
than earlier estimates. On top of this, new year seven pupils in secondary are 22 months, 22 months behind where they should be. So the pandemic is inflicting serious damage to learning, which will take years to reverse. I and mean, for many children, that lost learning is not going to be recovered. And sadly, that damage is being is disproportionately inflicted on the most disadvantaged, right? The attainment gap we know is a complex phenomenon. One, you know, that it's, it's a result of many factors, a number of which extend well outside the school gate. Technology was never designed to replace face-to-face -face teaching, and it's not a silver bullet, but it can help to reverse a really worrying situation by augmenting teaching and learning to become more efficient to target improving those outcomes. So in terms of what's the future and what have we seen, well, look, 80% of teachers say that combining technology with traditional resources and teaching methods will remain an important part of education. Technology for technology's sake is not the answer. Our educational institutions are based on human to human interaction, complemented and augmented by AI technology. That's not gonna change. The education system of the future should harness the powers of AI rather than depend on them. While AI can liberate teachers and personalize education, it can't assess the nuances in long form assessment, let alone comfort an upset student, nurture a young mind to its full potential or inspire a child to achieve greatness. All of that requires the care of a human teacher. So it's using the artificial intelligence to empower the human intelligence. So we've got to support our human teachers if we're gonna achieve success. We have to provide them with the tools they need to succeed. And I just ask the audience to imagine what can we achieve in education if we give our teachers the time, the resources, the respect and the authority that they deserve. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, again, I'm stuck between so many questions I wanna ask you, but I, I'll choose this one. We've seen over the last few years a kind of tech lash, which is to do with the power of big tech and the way in which big tech can't help using data that is generated for one purpose for other purposes, which may not be so benign or may not be ones that we wanted. In terms of the regulatory framework here, what are the things we need to do to ensure that we don't end up with a kind of education tech, tech, tech lash yeah. as well? It's really it's such a good question. And actually, I was, I'm delighted that uh, Professor Luckin's here. So we have um, just finalised the framework. Um, it's been published now. We co-founded the Institute for Ethical AI and Education. It was about creating that gold standard in terms of data standards, going well above and beyond uh, GDPR. And it's a really important framework. So if you're interested in the ethics, then, then, then do seek it out. The University of Buckingham uh, has, has it on their website. But regulation is really important. And actually, a lot of big tech has said regulation is very important. I think that we're going to lead in this space. So um, when it comes to, you know, not just being mindful of data, but in this space, uh, education and technology can open up all sorts of issues, not just on data, but for example, if you have forums, right, forums for children to chat to each other, that can open up um, all sorts of issues. If you have education technology that then starts to advise children using AI, potentially bias AI in terms of career pathways, that will create problems. So I think that we are making headway here, though, um, and that is with the online harms bill that's going to be debated in Parliament this year. And actually, I'm really proud to be British because I think that this is going to be one of the first instances actually across the globe where a country is really going to take it um, um, and, you know, and, and look at how they can protect 
all people, uh, not just children in education, uh, but from online harms. And I think that has been the worry with this tech clash, um, as you call it, in terms of it, big tech. It will be probably focused on big tech, but I think that that will serve as a precedent for ed tech. For ed tech, I think the big key uh, point here is that the data that is collected by the tech company on the individual belongs to the individual. And I think we need to stick with that. And I think we need to be firm about that. I think if there is technology that's existing that's taking logging data, there's all sorts of things we can learn from the data that's really exciting, that can help us, that can take us forward, that can help us to level the playing field. But if personal data is collected, that belongs to the student. And, um, and so it's up to the educators um, to hold firm on that. So when they're looking at EdTech uh, for their school, when parents are looking at EdTech uh, online for their children, when students, young adults are looking at EdTech, you have to ensure that data then belongs to you. It can be deleted, et cetera. Um, but stand, stand firm on things like that because nothing is otherwise ever free. Um, and I think people have to watch out for that. Um, but yes, I mean, but do look at the framework for the Institute of Ethical AI and Education because it has it is a framework for the deputy head um, who's looking at procuring ed tech. It, it's incredibly strict and firm. And I think if you follow it to the letter and ask suppliers to what that framework asks you for, it, it protects you significantly. And I think that is the gold standard for education technology. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you. So last but not least, Alex Beard. Alex is a former teacher, now broadcaster, author, and head of the Global Learning Lab at Teach for All, a growing network of independent organizations working in 60 countries worldwide to ensure that all children fulfill their potential. Alex is fortunate to spend much of his time traveling the world. I don't know how much of the last, you've done that in the last year, but in search of the practices that will shape the future of learning. Alex, looking back, um, how do you mark the UK's emergency shift to digital teaching? This, of course, has not just been an experiment in the UK, it's been a global experiment. What are the most important lessons for us to take from the experience as educators and as learners? Thanks, Matthew. So, yeah, oh, just a couple of things to start. You know, at one point there were over a billion children around the world out of school. And in my work, I work across 60 countries, so had some knowledge of what was going on for many of them, some working in and living in high-tech situations, others in low-tech scenarios, some with no access, many with no access to, to tech um, at all. And I think that, you know, just before jumping in, I think one of the things you were saying earlier, is this a moment for EdTech to become more part of the furniture? I think yes, for, for two reasons. One is because suddenly there have been problems that have emerged in our education systems that tech is quite well set up to solve. But then secondly, I think there is a new generation of actors in the ed tech space that are beginning to think a bit differently about the role that tech plays within an education system. And they're doing so by focusing on the people in the system and how the tech can support them um, in their roles. And that's what I want to talk about a bit. I think we have seen this big divide growing in education in the past year. But I think it's not really a digital divide so much as a divide in access to people that can support learners around the world in which tech might play a part uh, in helping them. So to give a few examples from across our global network, um, in Malaysia, we saw the Ministry of Education partnering with Google and a number of social entrepreneurs to set up something a bit similar to Oak National Academy there in Chile we saw a group of 60 teachers coming together to launch La Radio Enseña, which was a, 
a radio station putting out lessons nonstop through the pandemic to 3,000 schools in 200 rural communities across the country. And they've since added WhatsApp functionality to allow interaction, uh, to be in touch with parents and so on. In Nigeria, we saw um, a group of teachers setting up a, a TV teaching channel to reach kids across Ogun State, to reach millions of, of students there. And again, adding an online component to that to allow some interaction between uh, teachers and learners. In, in the US, we saw a launch of something called Wi-Fi on Wheels to bring, using school buses, connectivity to communities that didn't already have it so they could access some of the online learning that was existing. Um, and I think through these examples that we saw over the past year, we learned a few things. Um, one of them was that although tech clearly plays a role in all of these solutions and in all the ones that we've heard of today, it was really the way that people were coming together to identify problems, try to solve them, and then work out what the right bit of tech was to do so, that were driving the responses to the crisis. And often those weren't top down. Um, they weren't coming from one single idea. They were coming from the bottom up, just like Oak National Academy was launched by a group of teachers getting together over WhatsApp. That's what we saw time and time again. Um, it was people with real needs, leveraging tools and relationships to solve problems. Um, so I think that's interesting. And I think that it maybe points to some of the sustained changes that might uh, take place as, as a result of, of the crisis. The first one I think is to do with roles. What role do different people play within education? And I think this can be facilitated by tech as Rose was saying. So we've seen perhaps a shift in the role of teachers, a little bit of a shift. Teachers now you know, using these tech tools um, more easily within their classrooms, a more comfortable part of their daily practice, but also teachers who are taking on system leadership roles to try to generate these solutions where they're not coming from elsewhere. Uh, secondly, I think we've seen tech enabling the greater involvement of parents. Now that, that can be complex tech or it can be simple things. In Brazil, we saw um, the launch of a program called Good Calling, where teachers were just phoning up parents daily to support them in the work they were doing with kids at home. Um, of course, you can have much more sophisticated models like Priyas as well for doing the same thing. I think there's also a shift in how we understand schools. Um, schools, I think in many cases during the pandemic have been real hubs for community, um, connecting people to services, um, as well as innovating new models of education using online learning. Um, and so I think there's a shift uh, in, in roles as well. And then finally, I think the bit where tech is helping a lot is Rose's point in helping to bring together more coherence between those different actors around kids to allow collaboration, to allow greater visibility um, of what is going on between those different places. And so, you know, just to conclude a, a few quick reflections, I think we have an opportunity with what we've learned in the pandemic to rethink, you know, our systems. We shouldn't think about a single policy or a single piece of technology that's gonna solve things. We need to understand that it's people coming together that create solutions, sometimes using tech. I think we can rethink the roles of people or slightly rethink the roles that people play within education, including parents, certainly, but also students perhaps in the agency they have in some aspects of their learning. I think networks, the way that tech enables networks is gonna be a big and important part of the systems of the future. And then finally, just thinking about what is it that we wanna develop? I would say that the thing that we need to develop is not so much the new technologies as the people that will use them 
um, to solve problems and to improve learning for kids. Brilliant. Thanks very much. I failed entirely to, to leave as much time as there should be for q and I, I hope those of you who are watching forgive me because I just think we've had five absolutely brilliant presentations. So I've looked through um, the questions um, and, and they are fantastic questions. I'm going to ask the team at the RSA whether we can do something with these questions, maybe pull them together, or analyze them because there's some fantastic stuff in there. But because we've nearly run out of time, I'm going to pick one theme that has run through quite a lot of the questions, and I'm going to kind of go in, in reverse order. Because, Alex, you kind of referred to this, and in a way, I think you had a slightly different kind of perspective from, from Matt, maybe, on this. I don't know. But will what has happened in COVID, particularly around technology, but not just around technology, will that affect this kind of overstated but nevertheless real dichotomy between people's views about what schooling should be for. So if we kind of take the Nick Gibb versus Ken Robinson dichotomy, I know it's kind of overstated, but, you know, knowledge versus capabilities, um, you know, a, 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 a kind of traditional models of pedagogy versus more project-based learning, more child-centered or whatever. Does it change the terms of, of, of that debate? Does it enable us in some ways to kind of transcend it? Alex, you kind of mentioned this a little bit in what you said. Just reflect on that. I'm afraid, the panel, you've only going to have one, literally one minute each on this, which is impossible, I know. But Alex, you first. Um, I'm hopeful that it will enable us to transcend that debate by creating more time for kids to be learning. Um, so I think that school-based learning might still do some of the Nick Gibbs stuff, but we might be able to think of an expanded uh, set of interventions, opportunities facilitated by different platforms that will enable us to embrace uh, a perhaps broader concept of learning in which there are more people involved, parents, teachers, students, and potentially others, because tech is enabling that. Great, thank you. Uh, Priya, I wonder what your reflections are on whether this will impact these kind of long running divides in the education debate. Yeah, and I worry about those divides and actually why they're there in the first place. You know, people work, people argue about knowledge and skills all the time. They're not mutually exclusive. You know, you can you, you need the foundation, then you need to be able to apply it. And um, teachers do this every single day. So I always find it such a patronizing debate because half a million of them will just sit there and say, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> and um, and actually what this will allow us to do is free up time. You want to free up the time of your teachers so that they can then spend more time on the depth of learning. They can spend more time on the application of those skills. Someone in the someone in, who answered the question asked a fantastic question about what about financial literacy? What about all these other areas of real world skills? Well, we have time to bring those into formal education if we can free up teacher time. And so I think we need to do one thing, which is reduce the bloated curriculum, which is the size of the Hobbit, because who can deliver that in a couple of years? It's, it's beyond me how teachers manage to do that. But I think that we need to stop these these kind of quite old debates, actually. And if you look at the national curriculum that was developed by the Department of Education, and Nick Gibb was there, right, for the last decade, actually, when you look at the AOs, the assessment objectives, AO3 in mathematics is about analyzing problems. AO2 is deduction and inference. They do, they are about applying certain skills. So figure out the hard skills, the soft skills. We have to figure out a way to bring this all together and uh, spend less time on debates that I think fire up very loud people on social media. Um, and I think 
free up the time using technology of our wonderful teachers to be able to basically just do what they signed up to do, which is brilliant. Matt, I'll turn to you. You kind of said at the beginning that of your talk that it, 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 it shouldn't really change the core of what we do in schooling. I have to say, just to be provocative to you, and even though we nearly run out of time, that I, I thought what this, my daughter's school did was great, but I got more involved in education. I did, ten, I did think quite, quite a lot, but it was rather dull, I have to say, but maybe I'm just being very unfair. Um, Matt, what, do you think this is going to change the debate about what schooling is fundamentally for, how we do it? Um, so I, I don't think technology is going to change the debate about the fundamentals of what you believe the purpose of education is. Um, and I think there are multiple and valid views on the answer to that question. Do you think education is about preparing people for the world of work? Do you think it's about sharing with them some kind of canon? Do you think it is about uh, levelling playing fields and equalities? Do you think it's some sort of blend of those things? That is a, a values and political based uh, conversation that everybody is entitled to, and, and, I, and I don't, and I don't think it's tired. I think it's um, an important part of our, our political uh, discourse. The thing that I think is important once you've decided on what you think the purpose of education is, and I think again another strength of our system here in England is that schools with entirely different views on to answer that question can exist, and parents can choose which they send to. Um, like once you have once you've decided that, what you have to be guided by is the evidence about what works. And uh, the thing that happens in these moments occasionally is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can definitely believe that the purpose of education is preparing people for an unknown future. But if you think that teaching them through methods that aren't informed by human biology is going to work, um, your ideas, often your technology is not going to find the purchase that you hope it will in the system. Because to Priya's point, teachers know what they're doing. They know that they're teaching people stuff. They know that they're teaching people to apply that stuff. And the things that have been successful are the things that help the teachers. Brilliant. Thanks, Matt. We pride ourselves on finishing on time like the RSA. We always do, but we're just going to run over by a couple of minutes because it's so interesting. Rose, what's your view on this question? It has to change. It, it's out of date. We have to move on. We've got to stop this debate preventing us from making the kinds of changes with, that are needed in education. And there's many, many reasons, but I'll just give you one because we're at a very short of time. We now have intelligent machines that can do most of the things that are in our curriculum. Not necessarily the same machine doing all of the things in the curriculum, but we do not want to try and help people become computers. We want to do what Priya was saying. We want our AI to augment our human intelligence. Now, human intelligence outstrips AI phenomenally. But unfortunately, most of the parts of that human intelligence that we treasure in school are tiny. And they're most of the parts that AI can do. But there's all this other stuff. Matt talks about biology. Oh, my goodness. Psychology, neuroscience. There's so much to our intelligence that we don't even scratch the surface of in school. And we better start doing that. Otherwise, we will end up as second class robots in the future. We've got to change. And it's people who will make the change. Thanks, Rose. Nick, follow that. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that the idea of the human element is really important. and. Going back to your question, I think what we've realised is that time in school and out of school serves different purposes and technology has really exposed that. And especially for our most disadvantaged pupils, they need the human 
element, the social interaction, the discourse, the conversations, the inspiration and aspiration that very much is driven by that being in school and working with somebody um, face to face. Technology can really be used, um, as Priya said, to augment the wider teaching and learning and that curriculum delivery. So I'm hopeful it will look slightly different and that will be to the benefit of our disadvantaged kids the most. Nick, thank you. I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everyone I say, I hope you have a great Easter holiday, which you clearly will need and fully and fully deserve. Um, look, we're out of time. I, I'm drawing to the close of my 15-year tenure at the RSA Chief Executive. I, I've rarely enjoyed an event as much as this. It's been absolutely fantastic. We will find a way of, of using the questions or distilling the questions that you gave, and I'm sorry that I failed to, to get more of them uh, uh, discussed, but some really interesting thoughts uh, in that. And if you want to con con continue the conversation, then please do so on Twitter using the hashtag RSA education. And um, also touching on some of the issues we got into right at the end of our conversation, I hope you'll join us for debate two in the Rethinking Education series next month, when we'll be looking back at last summer's exam algorithm crisis and asking, is it time to reassess assessment? A reminder again that this series is part of the RSA's new Fair Education Programme which is investigating how we build momentum and take forward the best innovations to make education after COVID fairer than it was before. If you're interested in knowing more about the research we'll be engaged in over the coming months, please do get in touch. You'll find contact details in the chat box to speak to a member of our team. But most of all, thank you for tonight's absolutely brilliant speakers for the generosity of their insights. Thank you, Nick, Priya, Matt, Rose, and Alex. And Thank you all for watching. Good night and have a great Easter. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.